Greetings, and welcome to Mind Matters News. We have a more sobering set of topics for this month's BingeCast, namely around the practice of medicine and ongoing issues with opioid addiction. This episode is divided into three parts. First, we talk with anesthesiologist Dr. Richard Hurley about opioid addiction from a medical perspective. We then interview an anonymous guest about their own experience with opioids. This section of today's episode contains detailed description of surgery and opioid addiction that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Finally, we return to our conversation with Dr. Hurley to discuss how computer algorithms have both improved and stifled the proper practice of medicine. Now, here's your host, Robert J. Marks. Greetings. Welcome to Mind Matters News. I'm your affectionate host, Robert J. Marks. Today, we're going to discuss opioid addiction. Opioids include Oxycontin, Percodin, and Fentanyl. Uh, all are highly addictive, and all have been responsible for numerous deaths. Uh, they also have useful medical applications. So opioids like fentanyl are not themselves good or bad. It's like most everything. It's how it's used. Before we speak to our guest, here's a little bit of background about the brain chemistry of addiction from the perspective of uh, neuroscience. In the 1960s, neurosurgeon Benjamin Leibett noticed there was a signal in the brain that occurred before you knew you were going to do something. In other words, if you had a sudden impulse to call your mom, there would be a signal in your brain prior to your impulse to call your mother that would say, call your mother, and then it would, then it would tell you that you were supposed to call your mother. On the surface, it looks like you don't have free will. Your brain generates signals about what you were to do before you knew you wanted to do it. But Leibet noticed that humans do have the ability to say no to these impulses. We don't have to do what the brain signals tell us to do. Leibet called this free won't, not free will, but free won't, saying no to these impulses that came from the brain. There is some controversy about Leibet's experiment, but one thing is certain. Anyone who is recovering from an addiction practices free won't. I remember when I was quitting smoking, my wife Monica kept telling me we were not going to have any kids as long as I smoked, and I wanted to have kids. So as I was quitting smoking, my brain kept telling me, smoke a cigarette. Go ahead, Bob. You really want a cigarette. And I had to exercise a lot of free won't in quitting my addiction to tobacco. After a bunch of attempts, I finally quit. And when you quit an addiction, your brain rewires itself away from the addiction. But that path is always there, ready to be rebuilt. Recovering alcoholics are told they must not even take a sip of booze if they want to stay uh, on the wagon. And ex-smokers reinforce their commitment with the mantra which I was taught, I am a puff away from a pack a day. So I wasn't even to touch a cigarette. I am a puff away from a pack a day. Now, opioids are highly addictive. Oxycontin is a opioid. Percodan is an opioid. Uh, fentanyl off the street is an opioid that is killing people, but also has some useful medical uses. Uh, to talk about addictions, we're really privileged to have as our guest today, Richard Hurley. Uh, Dr. Hurley is a medical doctor who is board certified in anesthesiology and pain medicine. Dr. Hurley, welcome. Thank you very much, Robert. Let me, let me start off a little bit off topic. You are board certified. We hear this term a lot. 
what does it mean to be board certified? Who's the board? What is their authority in certifying you? And what hoops do you have to jump through to be board certified? Well, there are several boards that you know, but I chose anesthesia because my initial training was in anesthesia. So I'm boarded in anesthesia and pain medicine through the American Board of Anesthesiology. So this is a national board, is that right? That's correct. And it's been, it's been available for more than 75 years. Oh, I see. Is this put together by the AMA or a government agency? Or? Uh, they're, they're, the boards are, uh, it, is, it is put together, but it's not put together by the AMA. Okay. Okay. So it sounds like a federal sort of thing. That's correct. You, you were sharing with me that you have to stay up on things and that you have to take a, what is it, a test every few months? That's correct. Uh, uh, it's called maintenance of certification and it's called MOCA. And uh, many of the subspecialties in anesthesia uh, are required to, to uh, participate in this on an annual basis. And by the way, you're privileged to spend $210 a year for the uh, excitement of taking this exam every three months. <laughs> okay. uh, it's, it's done online and you get instant feedback. And I actually initially was against it, but uh, I'm not now. It's just uh, it's one way to study. It's another thing to keep up. It's also another way to realize that maybe you ought to be uh, reading current articles in certain areas that you are, you're not familiar with. And so there are also quality things that you have to do. You have to take, uh, you have to go to CME and, and take uh, things on safety and also on quality improvement. My goodness. You know, if I was taking an on, I shouldn't say if I, if somebody who was dishonest was taking a online test, I would open two computers and I would have my second computer ready to Google a question to get the answer. Well, that's, that's why. Could you do that in 60 seconds? Because that's all the time you have. <laughs> oh, is that what they do? They give you 60 seconds to do it. You give it, you get a question, you have uh, four answers and you must answer that within uh, 60 seconds. And if you don't, you get cut off and you get a, you get a zero. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, I've, that's happened to me several times. Oh, you, you've been cut off with the, third, with the, with the 60 seconds? Yeah, okay. but you just get cut off for that one question. You don't get, not for the whole exam. I see. I see. Okay, well, that's, that's, that's interesting. So I know now what board certified means. And you have to pass these tests every, every few months in order to stay board certified, right? That's correct. Okay. Wow. Okay. So that makes me feel better about going to board certified uh, physicians. I know that they've been tested to make sure that they're up to date. Okay. Let's, let's get back to the, to the topic that we wanted to talk about, and that is opioids. And I know you use opioids in your practice. Why, why are opioids so addictive? So there are very few drugs that can actually give you a sense of euphoria or pleasure but the compound and the molecular structure of the opioids stimulates certain areas of the brain. Now, you, the, the receptor that, that really does this is the mu receptor. There are other receptors that are also involved, but the mu receptor, and those receptors are throughout the brain. Okay, can we, can we back up a second? What, what sure. is a receptor in the brain? What, what does okay. that mean? So these are little tiny uh, receptors, little, uh, almost like a key in a, in a lock. And the molecule itself gets in there. It stimulates this little receptor. Uh, and uh, there are little G proteins that are then stimulated and they'll go on to stimulate the, uh, the receptor, then the nerve. And then th those nerves actually go, um, if it's in the brain, uh, it, they'll stimulate the uh, lateral hypothalamus, the uh, 
the tegmental area in the midbrain, and then it'll go to stimulate the areas of the acubens, which are actually basal ganglia, and all of these parts of the brain are heavily uh, modified by dopamine. And dopamine seems to be the pleasure one. There's also a release of endorphins, which are endogenous uh, morphine-like uh, uh, compounds in the brain. And the two of them together in high, do high amounts will produce euphoria. And then what's really interesting, this pleasure sensation that you get is then transmitted to the uh, prefrontal cortex, which makes you remember it all, okay? So hence the reason why that memory is never erased, and that's why you, one puff is one pack. Uh, I, I remember Mark Twain said quitting smoking was the easiest thing he'd ever done. He did it a thousand times. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Yep, I did it. I did it a thousand times too. Yep. So um, I have talked to some people. In fact, a very, very uh, close friend who was addicted to fentanyl. And it was it started with with medical procedures, and I guess the fentanyl comes in little lollipops and stuff like that. And he confided in me that he never took the opioids to get that high; that he just took the opioids so he could feel normal. So this feeling of euphoria comes maybe the first few times when you take this, and then all of a sudden your body your body craves it, and just to feel normal, he had to take his fentanyl. That is very true. And we see that also in prescription drugs where I just don't feel normal unless I take it. But uh, in prescription medications, especially short acting, what they do is they go through a sense of withdrawal every four to six hours as the drug wears off. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah, I also have been, um, I'm familiar with the Johnny Depp trial. And he says that he um, he went through a detox sort of situation, and it was the most miserable thing he had ever experienced in his life. My friend has done this also, and he's had kidney stones, which really hurt. He says, "Yeah, it was worth it. Worse than kidney stones is going through the the detoxing and getting that uh, that addiction out of his body." We hear about the street drug fentanyl, which is an opioid, killing so many people. Uh, what's happening here? It's interesting. It's a synthetic. It has uh, the molecular formula of fentanyl is very similar to uh, heroin. It's a unique analgesic, and that is it's extremely powerful. Given IV, it is 100 times uh, stronger than morphine and 50 times stronger than heroin. The problem with the drug is you get an intense high, no question about it, euphoric state, it, uh, that euphoria, though, like you mentioned, as you continue to use it, is not the same. But the therapeutic window of this drug is critical. In other words, if I give you an overdose of heroin or morphine, we've got about an hour to give you naloxone or Narcan to, to reverse that. It's an antidote. And then all of a sudden, you'll start breathing again. With fentanyl, you can stop. If you don't get to the patient with IV fentanyl within minutes, they'll be dead. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, I was reading um, about the street fentanyl that's available in the Authority for All Facts, People Magazine. <laughs> this was from the uh, April 18th, 2022 edition. They had a paper in there. They had the faces of fentanyl, and they had pictures, like 100 pictures of different people that have been killed through fentanyl. And I guess it's a big problem in the U.S. They said drug overdose deaths were up by nearly 30% last year. Right. And in Milwaukee County, they say there has been um, 
uh, 234% increase in drug-related deaths in the past 10 years. And it's cheap to make and up to, a, like you mentioned, was 100 times stronger than morphine. Um, the DEA has absconded 9.6 million of these pills in 2021. Wow. And 73% of the drug-related deaths in the United States, 73% are due to fentanyl. And that, that is astonishing. Uh, and then they say it's two, two, I think it's two milligrams is the amount of fentanyl that can kill an adult. Is that 200 micrograms or two tenths of a milligram is enough to kill anybody. Wow. That's, that's a very small amount. Now you understand when I was first uh, using the uh, fentanyl was when I was an anesthesiologist. So yeah, you use, you use fentanyl in your practice, right? If you could see how much fentanyl I would give a patient who had open heart surgery, it would scare you to death. But as long as I take over their pulmonary aspects, in other words, as long as I give the intubate the patient, put them on a ventilator, keep their carbon dioxide levels 40 or less, I can give you, I used to give um, six to 12 ampules and each ampule has uh, 250 micrograms. An ampule, it's a little glass ampule, and we would pop it, and then we would aspirate that out into a syringe and inject it IV. And prior to a thoracotomy, I would have given a patient six ampules. Now, you would, if, I, if you were on the table and I was giving you two cc's or 100 micrograms, you'd quit breathing within, oh, 45 to 60 seconds. Okay, wow. so that's not a problem with me because I'm going to breathe for you. You know what I mean? Oh, you you, you have instrumentation there, that, right? Right. That in other words, I'll put an endotracheal tube in there. I'll hook you up to a ventilator. Uh, I'll set the ventilator dose based on your tidal volumes and how often you breathe. I'll I'll, I'll make sure your oxygen levels and CO2 levels are normal, and we then we do the operation, and you have no pain at all. In other words, they crack your chest, and your heart rate and blood pressure doesn't change a bit. Wow. Okay. So, so it's a very powerful drug, but it's certainly, its utilization in anesthesia is, is just fantastic. Now, now, the obvious question, if you use the fentanyl in the anesthesia, do the patients have any withdrawal after they come out of their uh, operation? It's really, a, a, that's a, a great, great question. And, what, and the reason I say that is because the dr drug has a half-life of 30 minutes to an hour. That's all. I mean, it's gone. Uh, it is so rapidly metabolized and excreted primarily through the urine uh, so that uh, you, you'll have to actually give them uh, postoperatively uh, some pain medicine, uh, either fentanyl, whatever. Uh, and the fentanyl can be given either in, uh, in a bolus or you can get, uh, it, set it up in a pump and it'll deliver so many micrograms per hour. I see. So even the people that take this drug recreationally only have a short period of being high. Is that right? That's right. It, it, uh, IV, it's the half-life's about 30 to, uh, 30 to 60 minutes. Intramuscularly might last a little bit longer, but not much more than that. That's about it. Isn't that interesting? I, I watched the, um, there was a series called Dope Sick. It was on, I believe, the Hulu channel streaming, and it's still available if people want to watch it. It was a Hulu special production. Uh, Michael Keaton starred as a physician that got hooked on OxyContin, and it it went through the addiction that spread through Appalachia and Southern Ohio a decade or so ago. And, um, you know, the Oxycontin, it comes in pills. Fentanyl comes in lollipops. 
has there been been any pushback from the medical community about the prescription of these these drugs? Um, can any physician write a prescription for OxyContin or fentanyl? Okay, so if you write a prescription for OxyContin, you may be familiar with uh, the CDC guidelines for opioid prescription writing. No, no, I'm not. No, what okay, so in 2016, the CDC came out with um, 12 uh, guidelines in terms of for primary care physicians and, and what they should write. And what and let me just go through those real quickly so you'll understand what happened. It is any physician can write a prescription for fentanyl, but by the way, that's usually done in a patch. Okay. Now you could write it in most of the orals, the buckles, and the sublinguals and the sublingual sprays are predominantly for cancer pain. Okay. Breakthrough cancer pain. But uh, anybody can write that as long as they have a license to practice, like in Texas, and also have a license through the DEA. But but those are, are those for people who are terminally ill and you're just trying to make them comfortable until death comes? The only patients that I use, the suckers, the uh, sublinguals, are for patients primarily who have head and neck cancer. And uh, they're highly, you know, they're not opioid naive at all, okay? And the only way you could control their pain was, uh, for me and this particular patient, was the orals. Now, most patients who get fentanyl, like when we prescribe it, it's called uh, a fentanyl patch, or their trade name was duragesic. And they come in... In a, in a patch that looks like a Band-Aid, and the Band-Aid is designed to deliver the drug through the skin into the, central, uh, into the circulation and then into the central nervous system. And, it, and uh, they're labeled at 12 and a half micrograms per hour, 25 micrograms per hour, 50, 75, and so on. And, and that drug is so lipophilic, it penetrates the skin, fat, and gets into the circulation quickly. But it does take 11 hours to penetrate to get through. But once it's through, it's fine. And these patches, you, you, you change them every three days. I see. So they're kind of slow release in a way. Right. That's correct. But people who abuse it will then take the patch and uh, scrape it off and take the, the, the drug. If you look at it, if you scrape it off, it looks like a little gel. And they'll put that under their tongue, the whole amount. Yes. A, whole, a three day supply out of there. That's how you. And, and, and what, one of the things about this was that we used to see this, that that drug was used a lot by nursing homes because the nurses would only have to give their pain medicines every three days. They didn't have to run in every two hours. And then they would take those patches off. They'd throw them into the dumpster and the people would dive the dumpster to get those. Oh, yeah. And, they, and by the way, the, the name of them was they were called chicklets. 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 Yeah, that's a chicklet. And by the way, that's been on a. I've been on a sweaty arm for three days, and now you're going to put it in your mouth? Oh, my gosh. You must really be hard up if you're going to put a, a sweaty thing in your mouth. You really are. Oh, yeah, gosh. so the, the, the 12 guidelines, let me do this real quick. The, yeah, the opio yeah, let's go Opioids are not, not the first line anymore. You've got to try over-the-counters. You've got to try exercise. You've got to try uh, interventional uh, cognitive behavioral therapies. Uh, if you do decide to do them, you have to establish a, a realistic goals for pain and for function. You have to discuss the risk and benefits. The, you must start out with short-acting pain medicines, not long-acting like OxyContin. You got to use the lowest effective dose, and they really want it under 15 morphine milli equivalents, and I can explain that later on, or, and certainly not to exceed 90. Uh, you, if, you're going, if you're going to treat acute pain, you can only treat it for three to 10 days, uh, 10 days now in, in Texas. You can evaluate the benefits and harms frequently. So initially, when I put them on there, you need to see them every one to two to four weeks. 
Uh, then you got to do mitigating strategies. You got to give them naloxone if they're going to get more than 50 morphine equivalents. You can't let them take benzos, benzodiazepines at the same time, and they can't drink alcohol. Then you've got to re uh, review the prescription drug uh, uh, information, and that's uh, put out by the state now. And so I can look at, I can pull up the patient's name and see if somebody else is prescribing them uh, other medications. I have to do urine drug testing to see if they, uh, if they have illegal medications or alcohol in their urine. I have to, uh, you, ha you kind of avoid the use of opioids with benzos and with alcohol. What, what, are, what are benzos? Our benzos are, are benzodiazepines would be like Valium, Ativan, Lorazepam, uh, Ambien, uh, and then yeah, you've got to be. You've got to have a way to uh, offer medication-assisted treatment, either using Suboxone or possibly Methadone or uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. So all of these things came out in 2016. Okay, and that you know the opioid problems in the Appalachian in 2000, their death rate was the same as the general population. It, just, it was amazing. I mean, they didn't have they didn't have a big issue with it. OK, but by 2017, the death rate in the overdose death rate in the Appalachian was 72 percent higher than the general population. Wow. And one of the things they figured out was, interestingly enough, the prescription uh, writing was 45 percent higher than the general population. Wow. Yeah. So there was a lot of abuse. Uh, going on, uh, and some of that was due to marketing of of oxycontin and those kinds of things. Yeah, that's what that's what the dope sick uh, series was talking about. Was the company kept on coming out with pills with higher and higher dosage, right? And they they kept saying that if you had this this slow release of the opioid over time, it wasn't addictive, which turned out to just be company hype. It uh, it didn't work. My friend who was addicted to opioid, I think probably. This happened before all of these restrictions came in. Uh, in other words, he was given fentanyl whenever he said, "Ooh, I feel uncomfortable," and it was just—it was just an overdose. He became addicted totally from prescriptions. Sure. And he wanted to—he wanted to, and he was tempted to go to the street, but decided not to, and uh, suffered the consequences of of doing that. I also—I also read today as a warning. This is People Magazine. And, it's, and this is from the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency. It says, many fake pills made with fentanyl look like prescription drugs. And as many as, and this is what blew my mind, two in five counterfeit pills may contain a fatal dose of fentanyl. Two in five, according to, according to the source. And I tell you, that's really scary. And I, I, I understand on the street, they also begin to do things like cut cocaine with some fentanyl. And so even though you don't buy the, this fentanyl and you buy some sort of other drugs, there's a good chance that it's, it's cut with fentanyl in order to give it a bigger hit. So this is, yeah, this is, this is really serious. But it sounds like from the medical side that things are pretty well, um, pretty, pretty well tuned right now. And they seem to be working pretty well. Have the, statistic, have the statistics gone down after the imposition of these criteria? Before the, the guidelines came out, prescription opioid writing was actually going down. Now, it has dropped precipitously since 2016, but have the overdose deaths gone up? The answer to that is yes. Over 100,000 last year, and 72% of those are fentanyl-based. So what has happened is, is that those guidelines, if the CDC, 
uh, came out with a guideline for you at Baylor University, how long would you think it would take because, before that became the standard of care? <laughs> so that's exactly. And so not only did it become the standard of care among physicians, uh, it also led to legislation about, about the states that they started to adopt. Uh, they made those, those recommendations into law. Okay. So, so the biggest problem we had then is that if I had a patient that needed more than 50 milligrams of morphine a day, and I told them now I can't order it because of the recommendation of the CDC guidelines, where do you think they went? Straight to the street. Did they? So now, yeah. So what has, have, what you, actually, had, have you had incidents of that? Where you absolutely. Had well, yeah. Well, incidents and you see them, you read them in the obituary. Okay. <laughs> oh gosh, that's terrible. That's actually what has actually happened is that when, when we started cutting them back and they, uh, they couldn't get the medication and fentanyl was so easy to get, that, that was it. And, you know, we're really something, if, you're, if you are truly, if your thoughts of addiction and uh, substance abuse disorder are so strong, I, I can't believe this, but actually the addict will actually go and try to get the drug that killed the most people. Now, that thinking is just, bizarre. yeah. In other words, uh, I, I like what I've got, but if that, if that dose killed that person, I bet you if I took just a little bit less than that, that would be the best high I'd ever have. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that something? Oh, my gosh. That's, I tell you, addiction and, um, and the wiring of the brain to these dopamine hits is really dangerous. You mentioned that I was going to ask if you had any advice for the addicted. I, you mentioned kind of exercise, which I think is interesting. What what happens when you exercise? How does that help you? Physical therapy uh, uh, is um, what I always tell my patients. If you actually do something function wise, uh, walk a block, walk a flight of stairs, um, walk a mile. Achieving a physical goal is actually pain relieving. And you may have noticed that yourself, okay? I couldn't do 10 push-ups and now I can do 11. Or I, in other words, if, if you set physical uh, goals to patients and they actually do them, uh, it actually is pain, rela pain relieving. If you set a goal like, uh, I'm gonna lose 10 pounds in the next three months, setting goals and actually accomplish them uh, actually increase, creates, uh, again, the same kind of pleasure sensation. Now, granted, it's not as powerful as the opioids, but those things are definitely helpful. That's interesting. I have a, I have a friend, in fact, I'll even mention his name. He's Winston Ewart. He was one of my students who started to pack on some pounds, and I saw him, if, I don't know, a year later, and he was skinny. And I said, what happened? He says, I found out that if I charted my weight every day and the weight went down, I have this sense of pleasure. I don't know if he got a dopamine hit, but whatever, but I think that nerds like like Winston and me are really interested in graphs and things like that. So he put he put down a little point and he said, that made me feel so good. I wanted to feel that good the next day. So that that was that was another example of what happened. You also mentioned cognitive uh, cognitive therapy. Right. Cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. Um, do, would, does this include like groups like uh, AA and um, that, that are, that are similar to AA? Certainly. Uh, you could certainly say that's a part of the group, uh, uh, but basically they, they, what, what they try to do is they try to uh, uh, change or the, your thought processes in terms of a situation. Okay. So you may have a situation 
but is that situation causing your emotional change or is it the interpretation of that that is okay? So they, they help you to deal with your thought processes as you deal with whatever it is that the issue is, whether it's addiction or, or whatever, okay? It changes the thoughts and feelings. I mean, I have patients that come into my office and I ask them, well, tell me about your pain. And they'll say, well, my back pain, I feel like somebody is cutting me in two with a knife. Oh. Okay. So that, we call that, obviously, they may have had back surgery, but they weren't cut in two. If they were awake, how would they know that? In other words, many patients make it dramatic or catastrophize their pain beyond, doctor, you don't understand what I'm going through. And yet... 65% 65% of all patients who are over 65 have at least three to four weeks of uh, crippling back pain every year. Okay. Wait, say that again. Three, uh, what yeah, percent? 65%, 65% of all uh, Americans after the age of 65 will have at least three weeks of significant lower back pain. A year? A year, every year. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, those, those numbers are well done. So, but, so what they try to do is to help them to, deter, if a situation occurs and that's actually, you think this is what's causing it, we're going to interpret that differently. We're going to develop constructive techniques. And one of the things that they do is get you to write it down like this guy did. Okay. So, so that you can modify your dysfunctional, dysfunctional thinking um, and you can modify these automatic thoughts like Libet was getting, getting into that you mentioned at the beginning of the talk. The free won't, yes. Right. Yeah, I remember I used to be afraid of needles. I would, I would hate to go in and uh, give blood because I was just afraid of needles. Uh, I, my, my son is really afraid of needles. And I've talked a lot to these, what do they call them, phlebotomists? Is that the person that take, takes the blood? Uh, I've talked to them and... Um, I ask who is most afraid of the needles going into the arm. And two of about the five phlebotomists that I've talked to said it's these big burly guys with tattoos trying to announce to the world they're big tough guys, <laughs> which which I thought was a very interesting, uh, very interesting observation. Anyway, I used to be afraid of needles. And then one day, and I think this this touches on what you were talking about, one day I decided, look, it doesn't hurt that much. I'm more afraid of the needles than I am the pain. So I started to actually look at my arm when the needle went in, and it wasn't that bad. It was just this this change in perspective that took away that fear. And I think that's what you're talking about with these uh, with, with this cognitive uh, intervention that you're talking about. And, and I, I explain this to my patients in this way. If I came into the room, didn't introduce myself to you, and I slapped you in your face. Your response might be one of horror and you might leave, or you might slap me back. <laughs> yes. But if but if I came into the room with a suitcase and I opened it up and it was full of $100 bills, and I said, this is yours, tax-free, and then I slapped you, your response would be totally different. You, you might say, why'd you do that? But you wouldn't walk out. And you probably, at the end of the visit, you'd say thank you for the million dollars, you know? Uh-huh. So it's the state of mind in which this happens that creates the emotional response that's uh, like you had. You didn't have the emotional response to the needle. For, you just, you, you, you set your thought processes that way. I don't have any problem with needles. I, my, plan, my problem is flying on an airplane. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. And all of the problems, it starts... 
from the time I start packing in the morning to the time I get to the terminal, to the time I check in, to the time I go through my bags to take shoes off. By the time I get there, I'm a basket case. And the way I get through it is watch an action movie on my phone. <laughs> is that right? Okay. You know, Emo Phillips, uh, he tells a joke about um, him being despondent and kind of depressed. And he, he went to a therapist to get cheered up. And the therapist charged him $100 per hour. And then he realized that if he was walking down the street and he found a $100 bill, that that would really cheer him up. So, <laughs> so he decided not to, not to go to his therapist anymore, that saving that $100 was, uh, was going to be good enough for him. Dr. Hurley, any last uh, thoughts? Well, the, um, I think we, we've covered a lot of different topic, topics on that, but the opioid uh, issues are still there. Uh, and I think for what I, I tell my patients is, you have to make up your mind what you're going to do at the very end. And the problem with opioid addiction is, is it starts at such an early age when we're young and we're young teenagers and stuff. We really don't have those firm grasps of the problems. And, and, and so and we want to experiment. And the peer pressure, as you know, is just terrible. And we think we're, we think we're immortal when we're young. Right. And, you know, and parents are nervous about talking to their young children about sex. And they're just as, but for some reason, they're nervous about talking about drugs. And uh, a a teenager's got to have, they've got to just say no, like Nancy Reagan said. They got to have that just imprinted in their brain from day one. Otherwise, uh, this this is, it's a sad situation. And it's bringing our our, uh, death rates down. Uh, You know, we used to have one of the, we we used to live uh, to be 82 years old. It's dropping every year because of opioid deaths, you know. Really, and that's the prime the prime reason that the death age is lowering? Yeah, if you're supposed to live to be 82 and you overdose at age 15, what do you think that does to the Oh, that, to that the really average? screws up the average. Yeah, Absolutely. It it's massive changes, yeah. Well, this People magazine said that almost all of the opioid deaths from fentanyl were from young kids. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the pictures here, 25, 35, 20, 32 age 19, uh, 20. So these are all kids that think they're immortal and just want to experience part of life. And like you said, it's probably do a lot to peer pressure too. Yeah, absolutely. In a previous podcast, we chatted with Dr. Richard Hurley about opioid addiction. Addiction is documented by the science of neuropsychology. Donald Hebb, who passed in 1985, is considered the father of neuropsychology because of the way he first effectively merged the psychological world and the world of neuroscience. He is known for Hebb's Law. We study this in artificial intelligence and as part of brain chemistry. Hebb's Law says that, um, well, it's summarized in a very short statement. It's that neurons that fire together, wire together. In terms of addiction, this roughly means that as you repeatedly perform an action that gives you pleasure, uh, and by pleasure, we can also include the idea of relief, so it gives you pleasure or relief. Anyway, an action that gives you pleasure, the neurons, as, as this happens, the neurons between the action and the pleasure in your brain simultaneously fire. So the path between the neurons dedicated to the action and the neurons dedicated to the pleasure, they build up in strength. So the path becomes stronger and stronger. Triggers eventually push you towards performing the action to experience the pleasure. I think I I mentioned in the previous podcast with Dr. Hurley that I used to smoke. 
I am old enough to remember when smoking was allowed on airplanes, on commercial airplanes. There were smoking and non-smoking sections. It was actually a big joke because after the plane took off, uh, the whole cabin filled with smoke. But after the plane took off, it was okay to smoke. And there was this audible ding when the non-smoking light was turned off. And all the smokers lit up. Both the smoking and non-smoking sections of the cabin were filled with tobacco smoke. Today, smoking on commercial aircraft seems intolerable. So the good news is I quit smoking. And my neural path between what the audible ding and having a cigarette began to lessen. But it never went away. Today, when the fastened seatbelt light goes off in an airplane, there's also a ding. It was like a ding when the, when the no smoking uh, light went off. And when this happens, I get an immediate urge to have a cigarette, even today. The urge is slight, and the urge is mostly curious. I think, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, and so it isn't, it isn't a compelling urge. But I quickly and easily dismiss it and just go on about things. But, um, but this reminds me, the little dinging that the neural path talked about in Hebb's Law, it's still there. It's diminished, but it's still there. The neuropsychological science of addiction is more complicated than this, but Hebb's Law is one high-level way to look at it. Now, opioids, of course, are more addictive than tobacco. Our guest today was addicted to opioids, specifically the highly potent synthetic opioid fentanyl. And we're, we're not going to disclose his identity, but we'll simply call him Stretch. Is that okay? Is that's that okay? fine. Yeah. That's... Okay. Well, Stretch, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thanks for having me, Mr. Marks. You're, you're very welcome. Uh, well, first of all, let's get legality out of the way. Uh, you never purchased fentanyl off the street. I think all of the drugs that were that you became addicted to were prescribed by physicians. Is this right? Yep. Um, and I do know that you suffered from a series of failed surgeries. And so let's talk about these. And could you kind of go through the surgeries and the uh, pain that was associated with each one of the surgeries and uh, and then the corresponding opioid prescriptions you were, you were given? Sure. That That's a long, long story. Essentially, I got diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease. This was 1999. And it was after a long period of bleeding, basically bloody diarrhea continuously. And, you know, urgent, urgent, but it was always lots of blood. And before I ended up at the gastroenterologist, just for a note, my, uh, my, General practitioner kept diagnosing me with hemorrhoids for okay. all this blood. Okay. So this, in all reality, the, the the failings of the medical community started with the late diagnosis of this disease I was having symptoms of for a long time before my general practitioner walked through the insurance-approved steps to get me a proper diagnosis, and it. Initially, the inflammation was seen with the barium enema, which is a horrible experience. You don't want to be behind or in front of a doctor who is standing behind a sheet of plexiglass to uh, assess you. That's never a good situation. Wait, wait. You, you stood behind a. There was a plexiglass. Between yes, you and because the I was. He. I had 
yeah, received a barium enema for the imaging. And when he came in, he wanted to protect himself in case the barium let loose. Oh, was there radioactivity in the barium? Is that the idea? Well, no, but yes, there was. But he was more concerned with the splashing onto him of the stuff that might come <laughs> flying out of my bottom. Oh, my gosh. So okay. he stood behind a, like a you know Roman shield that he carried with him that yeah. was plexiglass that he could see through. So, you know. Did he carry it around like a shield? I swear to goodness, yes. Okay. He came out of the all office with the computers and grabbed a shield and walked up to me. And... Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> that's a terrible experience. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. okay. So, so, anyhow, I finally saw a gastroenterologist. He did an endoscopy. Yes, there was, there was uh, evidence of ulcerative colitis, which is the swelling of only, well, it's the ulceration of only the rectum and large bowel. Uh, if you've heard of Crohn's disease, Crohn's disease is basically the same inflammatory bowel disease, but it affects the whole digestive tract where ulcerative colitis is strictly colon and rectum. So I went on medication. Oh, that was difficult trying to hold an enema of medication when you go to bed every night. Um, so I was glad that my disease went into remission, which at the time I just thought, you know, have never had any, having a, a life-threatening disease or, or a long-term disease. I didn't understand the significance of the medication and getting it into remission at the time. So after it, the medication worked, I stopped taking the medication thinking, oh, goody, that's over with. Well, it came back with the vengeance, and it never the medication never worked again after that period. So I ended up in the hospital, local hospital, for a week. Uh, they couldn't bring the inflammation under control with prednisone. That was the place I received my first injection of opiates. First experience with opiates ever was in that hospital. About the fourth day I was in there, and I after the the nurse was she was uh let's say. She, she instigated the shot. I think she understood that I was pretty miserable and offered me one where nobody else had. And, you know, of course, I was kind of like, uh, I guess. And she's, okay, I, you know, I'm going to get you one. So she comes back with a shot and gives it to me. And I just remember, it seemed like forever later, just sitting on the edge of the bed in the same exact spot that I was when she you know, after I set up, after she gave me the injection. So it really just kind of totally zoned me out. And it really was. So zoned you out. How, they zoned me out, but it was, it was like a, it was an escape from the reality of the situation at the time. Even though I didn't understand it as such, I just zoned out. You know, so it kind of gave me a mental and a physical respite that I, I probably didn't even recognize that I was getting at the time. But it wasn't a sense of, I want that again, or, oh, I need to have that. I just noticed it was like, man, I, there was something strange happening with the passing of time over this period. I realized I was, you know, loopy. But the the notion that all this time had passed and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't recall being miserable or whatever during that period was interesting. So I ended up going to the Cleveland Clinic. My gastroenterologist that I had basically said, you're going to the Cleveland Clinic. Now, the Cleveland Clinic has an incredible reputation. Yes, at the time, they were one of the best, probably next to Mayo Clinic, the next best place to go in the country for uh, bowel surgery. 
colorectal surgery. And there was a gentleman there who started a program called Dr. Fazio, who had been there for years from Australia and had really developed a, a fine program there that, that they were proud of and that, you know, drew a lot of uh, support. So off I went, transferred at night in an ambulate, which don't pick the ambulate. What's take an the ambulate? ambulate? The ambulate is a wheelchair delivery van that's made to deliver wheelchairs, not people. I see. Okay. So they put you in a wheelchair, in the wheelchair van, and you're surrounded by 50 wheelchairs banging and clanking and banging and clanking for however long it takes to get you to the next hospital. So you've been in this nice, you know, calm environment. Next thing you know, you're in a 55-gallon drum with people banging on it with sticks for an hour. Okay. You know, so it's really a traumatic experience. Don't do the ambulance unless you absolutely have to. to have a family member transfer you to it, the other hospital if you can. Okay, so you went to the Cleveland Clinic and you had another, you had an operation. I ended up, yes, having an emergency colectomy. And it was kind of taken out of my hands. Surgeon said, you got to do this or it could rupture and you might die. This was their protocol. If it got so bad that it looked like it could be at risk of, uh, you know, the, the inflammation and the ulceration actually breaking through the boundary of the bowel into the abdominal cavity. Oh, geez. Okay. And then that's the, the risk factor that can set off, I guess, you know, problems with sepsis and other things that can be deadly. So that was their line that they, they didn't want to, they didn't want my bowel to cross that line. So they chose to cut me wide open and take out the whole large intestine and no, I take that back. They left my rectum. They left my rectum and sewed me back up with an end ileostomy. The end of my small bowel protruded through my abdomen and they sewed it in and that used a regular ostomy appliance. That Stretch. was that's, that sounds terrible. That was the first surgery of a series of three that was intended to get me a functional ileal pouch, I've heard it referred to and essentially it's a reservoir that they fashion out of your small intestine that serves as your rectum as a place for your stool storage okay now when you did this again that, that was clearly a lot of pain yeah and there were probably more uh, opioids yes it, and interestingly at the time of course i had pain medicine for the surgery and after my pain was bad, but it wasn't. It wasn't like excruciating. They gave me opiates until it was time to go home. They gave me a, a modest amount of opiates. I believe they actually had tapered me off the opiates before they let me leave the hospital. You know, Doctor Hurley. I was talking to him. He said that during surgery, he pumps enough fentanyl into a patient to kill them, because if he didn't take over for the breathing that they would just stop breathing. But but they're in the operating room, and so it, it takes so the, the, the breathing apparatus takes over. So you went through an experience like that, yeah. I, I suppose. Yeah. Right? Man, I wake up, you know, in the recovery room, and, uh, you know, the, the nurse would assess your pain, if I recall, you know, I'm awful groggy, and they would, you know, administer more if you needed it. Yeah. You know, kind of assess based on your feedback. Did they give so, you one of these little... Uh, 
push buttons? Eventually, from the recovery room, by the time you got back into your hospital room, I believe I had a, even in that surgery, because that was in, that was in 2000. And some of the stuff, you know, there has been differences, but I do believe I had a pump with the button. So that's your solution, which is self-initiated, which is, you know, you learn that it's self-initiated, but it won't give you any more medica- medication than the doctor has told it it can give you. So there's a maximum that you can, that you, that you can give yourself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, but the important thing there was is when I checked out, they were very adamant to me about not using opiates unless I absolutely has to. Percocet at the time, you know, common, just everyday Percocet. Okay. Don't use this if you don't need to. Just very, you know, direct. And I didn't feel like I needed to, and I heeded the warning, you know. So I used ibuprofen. Worked fine. Okay. Not an opiate. For the most part, I use ibuprofen. After I was home, there were a couple nights where I chose to take some of the opiates, and I hated the way it made me feel. I mean, it bothered me. It, I couldn't sleep, and you know things were irritating, and it's just like oh, I don't like the way this stuff makes me feel. So well, I was deterred from it, taking it. It's really constipating too, right? Well, that's a that's an issue that eventually turns out to be a blessing and a curse for people that have had bowel surgeries, because where a normal person ends up constipated and has extremely difficult time, you know, overcoming that after having been on a lot of opiates. A person who has chronic loose bowels, the slowing of your digestive system is a very beneficial thing. That's interesting because it solidifies. It gives it time to, you know, yeah, draw out some water, which you need. You need your fluids and you need the nutrition from your food. And typically what's going on is it's just flying through your system. And for whatever reason, the, the... calming effects of opiates is a calming effect on your bowels okay and it it's a uh, different from like emodium type bowel slowers in that the emodium type bowel slowers are, are they they will cause cramping they will make it extremely difficult to actually use the bathroom to evacuate your bowels if you need to um and it doesn't do anything for the pain so it prolongs the pain that you're in while you're trying to evacuate your bowels because it's slowed things down it's made things rock hard and it's just not conducive to helping you so 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 the opiates do the opposite the opiate the opiates help you out with all that stuff it's a calm you don't typically get like rocks formed in your system and when you need to evacuate you can do so without a huge amount of pain and it works better course you're using opiates and there are bowel slowers that are designed as or that are opiates that are prescribed as bowel slowers wow for that's for, for that specific slowing, yes but but for the same reason they don't you know they're addictive okay. so they're you, addictive. you had uh, you had the surgery you went home you took some opioids yes didn't like it and got through my recovery without them for the most part okay so would you say you were in any way addicted did you have any Interestingly, I didn't know it at the time, but after having been on them in the hospital and come home, I was really having a hard time sleeping. I was, you know, fidgety and my arms would ache. And it's like, what is going on? And, you know, after I ended up dependent and addicted, 
I understood what was happening at that time. And I actually ended up calling. I was so disturbed. I called one of the doctors at the Cleveland clinics. Like, I don't, what's going on? You know, I, from, from the withdrawal effects that I didn't understand that I was experiencing, I was experiencing them in, experiencing them as just like a panic psychological kind of, Really, you know, so you did a you did psychological have, problem. You did have withdrawal symptoms, but you really identif- didn't identify. Yeah, them I didn't opioids. know that's what it was. Okay, let, let's go to the next uh, the next stage. That surgery didn't work some way, right? Well, that like I said, this was to part of uh, one surgery of three that occurred. So July two thousand, I had a colectomy. December of the same year, I had another surgery where. They opened me completely up again, went in and created the, what they call a J pouch, the ileo pouch out of the small intestine and fashioned it to, to my uh, rectal stump, planning to use my anus to evacuate this pouch. Wow. So it was a big surgery. And after that so, surgery. So the previous surgery failed in some way. Well, right? it wouldn't, the failure is happening. See that. When you're calling, you're saying the previous surgery. The first surgery that failed is really a three-surgery process. Oh, I see. Okay. So this is the second part of that surgery where it was very difficult. I was. It was like potentially not a long enough recovery between my first surgery and my second surgery. So it really wiped me out. And I was sore and, you know, I felt like I'd been beat up really bad after that surgery. So I started using the opiates more just because I was a wreck, basically. I think that the surgery was very invasive, you know. And the doctors were happy to prescribe you the opiates, right? Yes. Well, yeah. Well, they a modest amount of opiates. This is kind of like I think I had 20 Percocet or something. And like I said, I was struggling, and I used those. And then I didn't have any more, and it took me a while to come around after that sort of weeks, you know, before I was, just to give you an idea, after I got home from the hospital, it was two weeks before I could walk up a flight of stairs to get to the shower. Yeah. You know, I'd go sit down at the table, and somebody would have to scoot me up to the table to eat, you know, that's the kind of condition I was in. Whoa, okay. So... The second surgery was worse than that. And I, my perception was I didn't have enough pain medication. So, but I got through it. And then the third surgery. Well, before that, did, did you consider yourself in any way addicted no, after the no, second surgery? No, I considered myself uh, under-medicated. Under-medicated? Yes, because of the, the intensity of the recovery from that second surgery. Yeah. Uh, so after the third surgery, which was not nearly as invasive as the first two, it, but at the time, you know, I didn't understand what the recovery was going to be like. And actually, it was very frightening because I was going to start using my anus and my bowels like I hadn't done for a year at that point. Because that was in, well, that was April of 2001. So it, it wasn't was a quite new, a year. new style of life for you. Yeah. It, but the, the recovery as far as pain wasn't, wasn't that, <laughs> I say that, but a whole different problem arose. But as far as recovery from the abdominal surgery, I expected it to be worse. I asked for more pain medication, which they gave me based on my experience the second time around. 
but then I didn't end up needing them. That's kind of the point I'm trying to make. I had a, most of a bottle of pain medication left over after the recovery of that surgery. Okay, but I do know that eventually, from your stories, that you did get addicted. What, yeah, uh, that what happens pouch, with the addiction? The J-pouch never worked properly, and it leaked into my abdominal cavity. I'll just say, it le- my J-pouch leaked stool diarrhea into my abdominal cavity for seven years. I carried an abdominal infection, and... The pouch itself was always ulcerated and red and infected. And the gastroenterologist I had at the Cleveland Clinic was a dedicated man trying to come up with solutions for these post-pouch surgery problems. And they called it a pouchitis, which is basically just an infection in a pouch that they didn't understand. So the point I'm trying to make is we diddled around trying to fix the pouch longer than we should have. It should have been excised long before it was. Uh, We didn't do that. They didn't do the imagery that would have been necessary to see the abdominal infection because they were looking in my pouch, not in my abdominal cavity. And over this period of time, I, starting with the third surgery, directly after the third surgery, I would have frequent excruciatingly painful bowel movements. I mean, I consider myself a pretty tough guy. I would come out of the bowel movements shaking, eye-watering, you know, my knees quivering. That's the type of pain it was that I would need to recover from. And this wasn't from the constipation. This was regular. This was pain. It was like you know, trying to evacuate razor blades kind of thing. And it really did feel like somebody was jamming a knife up my rear end every time. But it would have, I would have to do this like, I mean, 14 times a day, 12, 14 times a day. And this went on for months and years in different varying amounts. Yes. Yes. Because I would get it under control a little bit and it would go wacky. I, I wore out, I became resistant to one antibiotic flagell. I had another antibiotic, Cipro, that I was using heavily, that if I became antibiotic resistant to that medication, there was only one more antibiotic that was available for me. Uh And had I became resistant to that, then I would have been at severe risk of of all the infections, hospital infections, you know, the C. diff and the uh, whatever else. Anyhow, the, the point is, they, we went, we did great lengths to try to get that J-pouch working. And I stuck it out the best I could. And I used pain medication to do it. I was able to bridge off of the pain medication that I had left over from the third surgery, start taking it, realize that it was going to enable me to live a better life. And that's when I basically chose, I'm going to do this. I'm going to use these meds because I need to, you know. What I should have done was said, okay, let's cut this pouch out and do something different. But didn't have the wisdom, you know, to do that at the time. So I started medicating it with pain medication. And my gastroenterologist chose, he, he, you know, after I, I decided to utilize the medication, he didn't want to be involved in prescribing the medication long term, which I understand they were starting to get a lot of heat from the... FDA 
which was of course induced by the you know the evil uh, pharmaceutical companies, but uh, the, you know they came down on the doctors, so the doctors chose to direct all their patients for chronic pain to actual chronic pain med doctors at the Cleveland Clinic. So there was a pain management department. Yeah, my understanding from Dr. Hurley, I think it was 2018 that there was guidelines put up for, for the prescription of things like uh, fentanyl and OxyContin. Yeah, I don't know exactly what they were, but I know they really tightened up the ship as far as you know people's access to the medications. Now, I think you mentioned to me that one of the ways that you took the medication was through lollipops. Is yeah. that right, fentanyl? Yeah. Yes, I was in that whole... You may have heard the whole story about the, the company that developed those. Uh, I was prescribed those fentanyl lollipops after having been on large amounts of you know tablet prescription medication. And I had started taking OxyContin, which is oxycodone in some continuous release form. Right, right. Well, the continuous release mechanism doesn't work very well for a person that doesn't have a complete bowel system because it doesn't stay in your system long enough for all the medication to release from the pill. And the other thing that happens oh, is the right. pill... The, the, the OxyContin is slow release. Yeah, so you know you spit it out halfway through because you don't have any more bowel. Oh, because you're, it goes through your system, yeah. I see. Okay. And, and for some reason, this is very, 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 very difficult for doctors to understand. I don't understand why. I don't understand if they insist that they don't want to go there because they don't want to have to uh, adjust their thinking. But people do not absorb medication in the same way, but they, they, they prescribe medication as though everybody receives the doses is into their body the same way. It doesn't happen. Okay. So they assume you are absorbing all the medication. There's no way for you to say, no, I'm not. Well, I found out a way. I, I, these, these pills would swell up. So I would have to force them through my anus to evacuate them. And, oh, and they would they would plop into the toilet, and I fished one out. I dried it. I cut it in half. I took pictures, and I took it to the doctor. Oh, that's so terrible! This is what you have to do with the educated men. You have to fish stuff out of the toilet to to make illustrations for these people that that think that they're you know know what they're doing. You know, we th we think about this as as uh, as gross in a way of talking about it, but when you're experiencing pain. You go through all sorts of situations. You, you have to, and it's amazing how resilient humans are. It's amazing how adaptable we are. And I've experienced that too. It's like you just, you just find a new normal. But when you're under the stress of constant pain, your body knows that you need to make a change, and it will basically force you to find some type of solution because your body won't tolerate the, the pain. You know, it'll... It, it's basically a motivator, personal motivator, physical pain. Yeah. You just can't ignore it. So what did you know you were addicted? Uh, well, the, after I started taking it to, to just you know maintain, try to maintain some, and I was working full time and overtime, and I was trying to travel. I mean, this was crazy. 
Um, but I knew based on the feeling when I didn't have it that I was starting to become dependent on it because I would start to feel agitated. And I knew that, you know, this was because I didn't have the, the medication in my system. Uh, you know, of course, there would be more pain, but on top of the pain, there would be this just kind of mental, just aggravation, unhappiness. When you get addicted to opioids, such as fentanyl, you have to take it not to get that euphoria again, but to feel normal. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the withdrawal is, becomes the motivator. The, the withdrawal is what you are mostly concerned about, and that is not being sick. Because after you become dependent, the withdrawal is more disturbing and painful and uh, agitating, whatever, that it's than the pain that you were trying to overcome with the medication ever was. And you may end up with the pain that you were trying to overcome with the medication on top of horrible withdrawal symptoms. And then maybe on top of that, you've got actual disease, you know, that's making you sick. So you've basically compounded your problem dramatically when you take on an addiction, if you've already got a physical health problem, because you've created another one for yourself that's as bad or worse than the one that you have from your from your point of view, from your well-being, quality of life point of view. I believe the addiction was the hardest and most urgent thing I needed to take care of in the context of all that sickness. Of course, it as urgent as it was, it took me a long, long time and two, two stints in rehab and then years with a uh, Suboxone product, which is a synthetic opiate that's not supposed to be psychoactive, that basically eliminates your cravings for the actual opiates. It tricks your body into thinking you're on opiates without the withdrawal associated with not being on them somehow. And it's basically how I experienced it was, it was like an easier letdown. The Suboxone was, yes, addictive in its own right in some way, but coming off of Suboxone was stepping down with less pain and discomfort than it would have been having tried to just come straight, or had it been previously coming off of opiates without the Suboxone. You mentioned you went to something like I don't know if it was called Narcotics Anonymous or something like that, but the support group. You've shared with me some of the incredible people that you met there. Yeah. Alcoholic Anonymous spawned Narcotics Anonymous, you know, other addiction, gambling anonymous. And it's all about applying the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous to the other addictions. So it's the same thing, basically. It's just the matter of the different people that are in the group. You know, Alcoholic Anonymous is tailored towards alcoholics. Sure. Narcotics Anonymous is tailored towards people. Do you remember any pills. of the people that you met? In these groups? Oh, I met so many people, so many different people. I, I And I've been in treatment from with, with anesthesiologists and dentists. Okay, you had anesthesiologists in the in group recovering from... Yes, um, dentists, nurses, uh, chiropractors, uh, business, wealthy businessmen, uh, executives, down to people that had been on death row. 
I'm serious. <laughs> the whole gamut of so humanity. So you have an anesthesiologist with a death row inmate. Well, it, not at the same time, but via the same system, Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, bring into those rooms came all these different types of people. And this was probably a mix of people that got addicted both through prescription and through street drugs. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, it doctors self-prescribing, you know, yeah. to, to manage either an injury that they think they can fix themselves, you know, or, uh, or managing their uh, anxiety and problems with their family with medication, uh, nurses that you know have easy access to it and know how to game the emergency rooms and get a bunch of medication out of the system. Oh, you know, you know that type of thing. No, nurses' boyfriends who come in with the nurses who are addicted because they've had access to the drugs through their girlfriend who's a nurse. Anything, any, any, it's almost amazing. And when I say that through these rooms, I not specifically through the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, but also in the hospitals, in the detox hospital, you know, I'm, I'm reflecting on the whole gamut of people I've seen in both of these environments. So I want to talk about your detox in a minute, but um, you did go through detox uh, and it was kind of self-imposed detox, right? Oh, I tried many, many times. Many times. I tried cold turkey so many times, and I would be so sick for a week or two, just trying, trying, miserable, barely able to get out of bed, trying to do it myself. And I would dedicate all that time and misery for, you know, however long it was, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. The, the sickness would not go away. It would not go away. So at some point, you become desperate. And you become suicidal. You know, how do I get rid of this? I am miserable. I don't want to live like this. You know, I can't live like this. The only solution a person sees is more of the drug. And really, that's the problem. The only solution is more of the drug. That breeds the desperation that people go through to get it. They become very desperate to get money, resources to get the drug because they feel like they're going to die without it. My goodness. But you did finally kick it. I did. I kicked it by going to two different rehab programs, one in Columbus, and I kicked it. But it was premature. I kicked it, and I still needed it from a medical standpoint. So I ended up eventually, months later, starting it again. Well, see, that's what I was going to ask you. If you go through detox and you still have the pain, I don't know, is it better to live with the addiction or live with the pain? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a rough choice. The, the, yeah, you can't do the pain. It'll just destroy you. And actually, there was, another, there was another solution we tried, and this was through the pain management clinic at the Cleveland Clinic. The doctor was... Uh, a doctor who had been involved in the early days of the neurostimulator development. So he'd been doing that for a long, long time. And he thought he could place a lead along my spine that would electrically scramble the pain signals coming from that area. Oh, my goodness. And you, you had an operation on your spine? I had two or three trials with that system that were temporary where the wires came out of my back. Oh my goodness, that's terrible. And it was amazing how it worked. It worked? It really was. It, it would work. 
But the problem was it had to be located just right along your spine. Yeah. And I would have the trial and be in the car. And by the time I would get home, bouncing in the car, it would have shifted enough where it had stopped becoming effective. Oh, geez. And it may start working somewhere else, you know, that you didn't want the electric stuff going And what to, happens you know? when it works somewhere else? Do you well, go numb? if you don't like the feeling of electricity boiling through, you know, the the you know, your lower member, it's it's not comfortable, you know. You could and actually that happened during one of the surgeries. He was trying to place it and they're they're sending the charge through and it electrifies my, you know, my genital area essentially and I start hollering out in the operating room, that's what's happening. And he and the other people that were in there are laughing out loud at me. But, I mean, it is kind of a shocking well, you experience. Want a, you, you, you want a doctor with a good sense of humor, I suppose. But, uh, no, that, that that's, yeah, that's very interesting. Well, and it's, I don't know how much money they spent on that, but it was a serious effort. I didn't keep track with the insurance or whatever. But in the end, he decided, okay, this he he basically had to apply for the coverage and they determined through these trials that this was work for these guys this guy we just got to get it implanted and sewn up in them yeah and then there's a remote used to control it oh really yeah. so you have a little wireless remote yeah or, or is it is it no there was no back? wire when it was done okay however they did isn't that, that interesting so they they did the implant and they this was the surgery I was just describing where, you know, they were having a hard time locating it. And in the end, they they stopped trying. And he, I didn't exactly know what had gone on because I wasn't completely under, but I, you know, they'd sedated me for relaxation kind of thing. And he came to my bedside and he said, "We I have been doing this for, I don't know, 20 years or something. And he said, you are the second person that I could not get this lead located in really and he said he suspected and this makes sense because he suspected that it was the scar tissue that had developed from the other the tests and in my bowel troubles there was lots of speculation about my body's maybe excessive production of scar tissue causing some problems okay so that kind of related to that I, you know, I don't know. There's no proof, but it was interesting that he suspected it could be scar tissue. Now, just just to clarify, this these well, first of all, you were awake during the surgery for the yeah. spinal implant. Yeah, and it wasn't painful. You know, they they had to sheet up, and I was my head was on the other side, and I don't remember being in pain. It must have been a local anesthetic type thing. Now, was the purpose of it or the effect of it to reduce your pain from the operations or to counteract the opioid addiction oh no it was it was the pain that was a result of the dysfunctional j pouch i see yeah, that okay. was a result of the surgery that's what it was all about wow but at the time had i had that been a solution i still would have had to withdraw from opiates because i was taking large amounts of opiates at the time so had that worked, and you know, in retrospect, I still would have had to have dealt with the opiate dependence problem. Understood. So how long have you been free of opiates? Whew. Seven years. Seven years. I think seven years. Um, will you ever take pain medication again? I have. Opioids? I have. I've had to be in the in the hospital for bowel obstructions, and I I used what they gave me in the hospital. 
Um, and I came home with a very small amount and used it. Didn't have a problem. Really? Really. So what was the problem the first time? You, you overdid it? Yeah. I think just way too much in my system. My body truly became dependent. You know, it needed the drug to function properly. And the way they describe what the drug does to you, you know, it kind of it changes the brain chemistry. Your brain, brain chemistry takes a very long time to re- adjust well that's what i talked about in the uh in the monologue in the introduction this idea that neurons that fire together are wired together so it takes a long time for that path to diminish and absolutely go away there i had another factor that was important i did do the alcoholics anonymous thing through the to through the suboxone program which is required suboxone is was the medication they used to wean me off of opiates and that took Five years I was on that stuff and gradually tapered down on that dose of that stuff. Yeah. So it was a very long and deliberate process to get off of it. And I, I basically, after twice in rehab, I was, I was still addicted, dependent. I had got to the point while I was in rehab the second time at the Cleveland Clinic that I could go a day and not, and not be miserable. But as soon as I went home, it was I. It was like all. It was starting all over again, and that I think that's a testament to like the people, places, and things you hear them say. You got to change your people, places, and things, and that's easy For to do yes. when you go to a hospital. But then they release you from the hospital, and you're back to your same old people, places, and things. You know, okay. which may be a daily routine of dealing with uh, you know medical problems, which you don't get away from. The thing that saved me, I believe, I mean, was the, I did have that pouch removed. That was taken away and they gave me another solution, another pouch that works a different way that actually is now problematic, but isn't causing the pain that the other pouch caused. So I didn't feel it necessary to continue with the alcoholic narcotic anonymous system because my Addiction was rooted in the, the the medical aspect. Yes. And I didn't have the same triggers that the people that were there taking, say, heroin and you well, know, cocaine and other stuff. Yeah. So I could kind of, if, if I didn't have the medical problem, there was no pressing need for me to want to take that medication. Now, if it was laying around in front of my face, if it was down at the corner store, like, alcohol yeah i may have not been able to have kicked it yeah but it was too hard to get to or and too risky to try to get and i never wanted to take that step you know outside the relative legality of i say relative because you know there was more scripts than i was supposed to have just on account of being in and out of the hospital so frequently. Gotcha. And they would write me scripts every time I left the hospital. <laughs> so I ended up with a, you know, an abundance of scripts that offered me more medication than I really should have been taking. So it wasn't done legitimately, but it wasn't done on the street, I guess. The the support of my addiction. Well, let me let me ask you one final question. What advice would you give to I guess number 1 uh, people who are, o- are undergoing operations who will need med- pain medication, such as fentanyl, the lollipop, the patches. Did you use the patches, the fentanyl patches? I did patches, pills, and lollipops at the same time. <laughs> really? 
oh gosh, that is. So what, what advice would you give them or maybe some youngster who is considering going out and getting some fentanyl on the street? Maybe you would be better off playing chicken with your friends, you know, in your fast cars or something than playing around with fentanyl, you know. Maybe you'd want to, like, try some skydiving without a parachute or, you know, cl- you know, do the cliff climbing thing without any ropes and stuff. It's kind of the same thing. You're, you're likely you're going to die if you don't have a good real good understanding of the risk that you're taking and nobody does because nobody looks at it from the addiction point of view they're, they're looking they're for being that advised high. yeah right you're taking it for a, a, a to alter your mind so what would you say to people that are undergoing operation that know that they have to use this pain relieving medication after they're done I mean, you you basically didn't have a choice. Well, I did be, just because of the circumstances. The first surgery, the doctor says, don't use it if you don't have to. And then I did use it a couple nights that were bad, but it was like, this is, I don't even like taking it. You know, so I stopped. I had no interest in using it. I had an alternative. I had ibuprofen. Okay. Which, interestingly, down the road becomes a problem for people with bowel problems because you can't take lots of ibuprofen. Okay. It, causes bleeding in your bowels so as a bowel patient you have no pain option choices other than acetafedamine which doesn't work tylenol or opiates that's your choice yeah well this has been great uh thank you we've been talking to somebody anonymous we're calling stretch thank you stretch (laughs) no problem this was uh stretch is not his real i hope i scared those kids enough to stay away from that stuff it's it's It'll kill you. It really will. And you don't understand how it will kill you until it's too late. And then you will be on your way to the grave. So, you know, we, we, we can talk about the theory of brain chemistry and neuropsychology, but uh, getting down to somebody who is experienced and walked through it is really eye opening and really educational. So, thank you very much. We really, really appreciate it. Today, we're going to discuss how algorithms can either sharpen or derail services. Specifically, we're going to talk about the practice of medicine. Algorithms, if you're not familiar, are step-by-step procedures for accomplishing something. When you bake a cake, for example, you have the input to the algorithm, which is all the ingredients, and then you have a step-by-step procedure. Put the cake mix in the batter, add some milk, some eggs possibly, Uh, beat it, preheat the oven, cook for a certain amount of time, et cetera, et cetera. And you end up with a cake. So recipes are algorithms. In fact, uh, I'd like to think that algorithms are indeed recipes. I think it it probably goes both ways. Uh, Google driving instructions are algorithms. When I'm told to go to your place and I'm supposed to go two miles on the freeway, turn left at the 7-Eleven, go a couple blocks, turn right on Oriole Street, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So those are step-by-step procedures to get me from point A to point B. Now, computers and AI are restricted to be algorithmic. In other words, Computers can only do things which are algorithmic. Every computer follows a step-by-step procedure for doing something. If something is non-algorithmic, it is not computable. And one of the things that we've shown at the Bradley Center is that creativity, nuance, and insight are human characteristics that are non-algorithmic. You cannot write a computer program to do them. 
creativity, nuance, and insight. And if you remove creativity, nuance, and insight and, and other criteria from making decisions, you're really stifling the degree to which you can interact. We're going to talk about how algorithms stifle and also enhance the practice of medicine. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Hurley. Dr. Hurley is a medical doctor who is board certified in anesthesiology and pain medicine. Dr. Hurley, welcome back. Thank you, Robert. You know, one of the things that we were talking about offline is algorithms and medical procedures and the fact that a surgeon can come up with a new way of doing something and they can patent it. That's really astonishing. So if a, if a surgeon that you works with uses a procedure that's patented by somebody else, does he have to pay the person that originated and owns that patent for the right to use that procedure? Do you know? No, I, I don't. I'm, I'm not an expert in this, but um, of those physicians that I have known that have developed a technique or a device, uh, they've usually partnered with uh, companies that actually may produce or manufacture that. And the two of them together will get a patent either on that procedure or the type of procedure or the device itself. You know, I have a personal story. I was trying to quit coffee, but every time I quit, I started to get headaches. And then I got a hold of some bad calamari. And that bad calamari put me in bed for about three days. Uh, just, just terrible and just agonizing, agonizing pain and gastral discomfort. Uh, when I finally recovered, I thought, you know, I probably went through my headache withdrawal during my during my time when I was out with this food poisoning from the bad calamari. And somebody told me about patentability, and I thought, you know, I could have patented this to, for people that want to uh, want to recover from uh, from addiction to coffee. But of course, it would involve bad calamari. But I'm sure that there's ways that they can induce uh, induce this sort of coma and distraction. And I think they use this in drug recovery sometimes, don't they? Yeah, it's really interesting for severe depression now, for different types of pain states, they're actually using uh, infusion of ketamine, which is its sister drug is LSD. And ketamine is a dissociative agent that actually seems to help depression. It's not such a strong deal in terms of uh, uh, abuse or addiction, but it has really been uh, successful in the treatment of depression. Okay, so do they knock you out for that, or they put it's you a, in sleep? They, you know, they don't have to give you an anesthetic dose. It's a it's an infusion in which you are awake. Uh, you're not dissociated, but the, there's and the infusion rights. You couldn't do anesthesia. You can actually use the drug for anesthesia. I used to use it all the time, but you got to use it a higher dose. It's not necessary to, to uh, use high doses in order to to get this response that you're looking for. I see. Okay. Well, speaking of procedures, uh, you've mentioned to me about the onslaught of technology in your field. And uh, could could you comment on that? One of the things you mentioned was a a suture device for deep deep wounds. The spine surgery that I do is predominantly uh, implanting spinal cord stimulators. And basically, it's two uh, very sophisticated wires that are put into the epidural space. It's tunneled up into the mid portion of the spine. And when you turn it on, patients feel tingles in their lower back and legs. And for some patients, that is excellent pain relief. But you don't even have to feel the stimulation or the great relief. The biggest problem we had with this is that active patients and even non-active patients, if they fell or whatever, the leads would move. They would either fall down or to the right or to the left. And, and so 
then you'd have to operate on them again and, and fix it. So I didn't have as much trouble as other people did, but I still had some what we call uh, migration of the lead. And, and so there was a group of, uh, I don't even know who they were, that developed a, a, a product called Fixate. And it basically, it's a device that allows you to suture a wire deep into, the, deep into a wound, and you don't even have to get your fingers down into it. It's just all designed with a way that it was done. And then when you pull up on it and tighten it up, it would cinch it down. And, and it, it's amazing. Once a lot of people started using this, the lead migration went way down and reoperations went way down. So it's, a, it's just a simple device that's available to anybody that wants to use it. That's interesting. So are there other technological advances? I, I understand that robotics is now being used for a lot of operations. And all of this is going to be algorithmic. You have to go in and the physician uh, either uses it as a, as a tool or if it's unmanned, it, it does it on its own. Exactly right. Yeah. So the robotic, uh, of course, I'm not as familiar as a lot of other people are, but we're using robotics in ter- treatment of some guys are using it for knee replacement. Uh, for any abdominal or pelvic surgery. Um, and the list is it just it keeps increasing daily. Uh, but the advantage is, is that you don't have to have large wounds. Uh, you can do all, everything through a small uh, incision. Uh, and so recovery time is better. Uh, and, and overall, the results have been just as good, if, if not better. That's that's interesting. So, what is the history of? I, I guess I, I guess technology has always been a part of medicine. But in terms of AI and some of this high technology, that's that's a recent development, isn't it? That's true. Okay. Let's talk about algorithms in other places. So we have algorithms in the practice of medicine. And I think that's one of the reasons that we have nurse practitioners today. When I was a boy, we didn't have nurse practitioners. You you went to the doctor. But nurse practitioners kind, kind of take care of, as I understand, the low-level medical diagnosis that can be taken care of through algorithms, you come in. You got a you got a fever. You got a you got a temperature, and they probably say you got flu, and you should take such and such medication. And this is pretty pro forma, and that's what the nurse practitioners are supposed to do. And then if they're outside of their silo of expertise, they they put you and they refer you to a specialist who can take care of you. I, I use a nurse practitioner, and I I really appreciate that she knows her limit of expertise, and I can go to her for you know, normal things, but if it goes outside of her silo of expertise, she can refer me to other, uh, other specialists. So nurse practitioners are followers of algorithms in terms of what they do. One of the things that I wanted to talk about is the, the application of algorithms, not necessarily in, in the practice of medicine, but in the constraints which are put on to medicine by insurance companies and stuff. Could, could you talk to that? I can. So let me first, um, by the way, uh, a nurse practitioner who refers a patient because they're not sure is, uh, I agree with you. I think that's, you, you appreciate that about her. Yes. You should also appreciate that about your own physician as well. I refer patients when I, when my, when I get out of my expertise, I don't treat somebody's diabetes. I don't treat their hypertension. I don't treat their stroke. I I make sure that I get that patient into the right position to take care of that. Good. But if you look at algorithms, medical algorithms are, it's it's a visual roadmap to help guide you in your decision making, okay? And and that that helps you plan for your, and evaluate your care. 
It's to help to remove the uncertainty. Okay, it makes the decision making uh, much more accurate, and it's developed by physicians for either physicians or other healthcare providers. It's evidence based and it's data driven. Now, algorithms by health insurance companies they use algorithms for prior authorizations to determine the medical necessity for hospital admissions, prescriptions, surgeries and procedures. So this really constrains your practice, doesn't it? Yeah, because their prior authorization purportedly is to reduce healthcare costs, but they claim to save money by denying health services that are considered to be experimental or unnecessary, even if that care or drug or procedure is FDA approved or approved by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Is that right? You know, I, w- I was talking to a friend that is the, his first name is John. I forget his, I forget his last name, but he has a startup of a new service for like senior people that can monitor old people in their houses and just make sure that they're, that they're okay. They're moving around. And then there's a lot of data mining, which comes from that where, how many times they go to the restroom, for example, uh, how long they sleep. And you, you can monitor all of this from their technology. But he was saying that his big hurdle was to get approval by Medicare and Medicaid. He said, this is the main hurdle that needs uh, jumping in approving new medicine and procedures. And He also said, and I want to check your viewpoint on this, that the insurance companies would usually become a part of it and agree to cover this cost if Medicare and Medicaid did that. But you're saying that's not necessarily true. Is that right? The Center for Medicare and Medicaid, they they can approve payment for anything that they think is, uh, uh, they're not going to approve something that's not FDA approved. Okay. In other words, if, if it's a drug. If it's a procedure, then there are all kinds of things that they have to do to get that done. But even then, many procedures and devices have to be FDA approved, okay? But insurance companies, private insurance companies, they don't have, just because Medicare does it, they don't, they're not obligated to do that, okay? Uh, and so they're, a lot of times, they are actually behind the eight ball. They make, that they, uh, they, they have other, other agendas or uh, a perfect example is a new drug that comes out that may have a strong indication FDA approved. Uh, but before I can write a prescription for that, I've got to use all the old drugs that uh, were never uh, approved for that particular diagnosis or problem. And, but we knew that if you used them off label, the patients got better. And then if they failed those, then you could order this new drug that might cost a hundred times more than the old drugs. Okay. I see. Okay. So the drug companies come in. And uh, they probably they, they probably want to have everything approved by insurance. And then the insurance company come in and they make all the rules. To what degree do the drug companies stifle your practice of medicine? Well, to give you an idea, and it's just recently in the last three years, we've seen a number of pharmaceutical companies produce drugs that are, that are called CGRP uh, inhibitors, which are known to be fantastic drugs for migraine. And these drugs are given uh, intramuscularly and they last about two months. And it's been tremendous in terms of relief of patients who suffer from migraine. In order to get this approved, you got to have 15 migraine attacks per month before they, they'll uh, uh, approve that drug. 
really. And, 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 and now that number may have gone down, and I don't want to. I shouldn't probably say give you an exact number. But there is a threshold. That's they, the, point. Uh, the threshold is so high, and it's so hard, and it takes a lot of time. Be, and if it, a lot of times, the nurses or physicians have to go to their insurance companies to get this approved. And I have the same problem I have with the things that I do. But that that those issues are that way, and um, uh, and so it, it is tough. Now over time, those drugs will become cheaper and the insurance companies will use them and then they'll be fighting something else, you know? I see. So it seems to me that in the practice of medicine, we talked about algorithms and nuance and insight and things that things of that sort. It seems that if, with a physician, you have this nuance, you have this insight into patients and that you should have this flexibility to prescribe what you think is appropriate. Yet I kind of get the sense that insurance companies kind of stifle that creativity and your practice, if you will, in medicine. Do you agree? I do. I totally agree. So in in other words, in in pain medicine, I'm an interventional pain physician. So I do agree that we should approach the patient, certainly from a conservative standpoint. You shouldn't go into the most expensive treatment modalities from day one. You got to get to know the patient. They got to have some trust in you and all that stuff. But if ultimately, uh, if I have a patient with mechanical back pain, uh, they're in their 50s or 60s, they've got enlarged uh, facet joints or the, the small joints in the lower back. And when they move a certain way, it pinches them and it causes them severe pain. And, and uh, they've, had, they've been on an, uh, over-the-counter medications such as Tylenol or ibuprofen or, or naproxen. Uh, they've done some exercises at home. It didn't help. Maybe they've even had physical therapy or chiropractic manipulation, or maybe they've had acupuncture. They've had all kinds of conservative care. Ultimately, I may decide that what I want to do is a procedure called median branch blocks or facet nerve injections, where we actually anesthetize the joint to see if their function and pain improves. Now, once I request that, I have to send all of my notes, all of my imaging, everything to the insurance company. And we might hear back from them in a week. So when a patient comes in and they expect care at that particular time, I can't even offer it to them because uh, it has to be uh, approved. And they'll have, they ask 15 different questions that my nurse will fill out electronically. Okay. And, but if she misses one, just one, uh, <laughs> or she doesn't dot the I across the T, it gets denied. And, and they have, the insurance companies have people who are not experts. They're not nurses. They're not even medical assistants. They are people who have been trained to read notes and then look for reasons to deny it. Well, this is the whole point, right? They're following fixed, rigid algorithms, which do yeah. not allow the flexibility that you need. Right. And, and, the, and these, these companies that do this have just blossomed with managed Medicare, Okay. So managed Medicare is essentially, everybody thinks managed Medicare is like standard, standard Medicare. That's false. Standard Medicare, you, had, you have standard Medicare, but then you have to pay for your supplement. Yes. Okay, which is 20% of the care. Well, that, sometimes that costs more than the uh, standard Medicare. Well, managed Medicare gets rid of all that. It's just one fee. And so uh, if an insurance company like Blue Cross Blue Shield or Aetna or whatever is going to be involved in that, they can make money if they deny services or postpone them. Uh, The algorithms that are set up are saying, well, the reason we have these algorithms are to get rid of unnecessary procedures, okay? 
but it's really interesting of the number of case procedures that I want to do. And then I go to appeal. Probably they don't reject more than maybe two or three initially, but within a month, a hundred percent of them are approved over time. Really? Okay. So, so they're reasonable, uh, but you really, you really have to go uh, to battle with them. How much time do you spend battling the insurance companies? So not all insurance companies require prior authorizations, but all managed Medicare does, and almost all primary insurance does, but standard Medicare does not. So if you have standard Medicare with a supplement, there's no pre-authorization. So what I, what I say and what you agree to is, is the type of care you're going to get. But people who sign up for managed Medicare are not aware that they're going to be plagued with pre-authorizations for that year that they have that insurance. You know, the funny thing is, uh, I go in for procedures every once in a while, and I'm giving an estimate of what the insurance company will pay. And invariably, almost 100%, I get a bill for extra money. In other words, the the medical doctor doesn't know how much the insurance company will pay. They guess, or maybe they have a standard reimbursement that they quote me, but it's never it's, it never seems to be enough. On one occasion, I did get a check back that I paid too much, but that was a rarity. And that, that seems to me to be frustrating and a very bad algorithm if you can't decide a priori beforehand what a procedure is going to cost. Absolutely. And you don't see that in... In medicine, if there was no insurance and everybody paid cash, you'd have the prices written on the outside on the billboard. <laughs> you know, I've heard that and wondering, so the insurance companies are, the algorithms that they use, let me use the word brittle. You can't crack them. You can't go outside of them. And that certainly must be frustrating. On, on the other hand, we know that we need algorithms because there needs to be some sort of constraint in terms of uh containing cost. So, Richard, how can it be fixed? So, the one the thing that the state of Texas came up with in the last legislative session was the golden rule. I don't know if you've heard of it or not. No. But essentially what they they got passed was if a physician had 6 months of care in which maybe they were proceduralist or whatever it was, but and all of virtually 90% of the requested authorizations were passed, then they would get a gold card, which will allow them to then oh. for the next for the next six months, they can go ahead and schedule the procedure without getting authorization. Now that's just coming about now. In other words, the, it's, it was supposed to have happened by um, I think the beginning of the year. But interestingly enough. Insurance companies have trying to tack on different rules, okay? <laughs> so it's still in, it still hasn't been a decision. But that was something that uh, the Texas legislature came up with, was the golden rule. In other words, if they look at you over your past six months and everything you did, even though you might have done some appeals, if your appeals were approved, then we will grant you a six-month reprieve from, from pre-authorizations. That's, I, you know, it's one thing or another. Uh, I, I disagree, but I understand why pre-authorization is there because there are always dishonest providers who do things, you know, they'll, they'll schedule procedures that are not indicated or they'll do too many of them um, or they'll do it for the wrong reason, you know? Wow. Now, when you when you or your assistants or your nurse uh, talks to the insurance companies, 
I guess one of the things that must be frustrating to you, and you mentioned this, is that you as a physician are arguing with somebody who is trying to follow a strict algorithm, but which has no medical experience. Correct. And they are still constrained to following their algorithm, yet you say that most of your controversies are concluded in a happy way. So how do they get around the algorithms? Are you given exemptions from the algorithm or what? Well, hopefully that's going to happen. In other words, um, maybe one day I'll have a gold card. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, 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 doubt, I doubt that interventional pain physicians, because the, the, the problem with chronic pain is, is that everybody's going to be a patient at, at some time or another. You will be, I will be, you'll have some. Now, how you cope with it is obviously different. Everybody copes with it differently. But authorizations for uh, certain medications are like those, those CGRP inhibitors that I was telling you for migraine. Well, those drugs cost $600 a month. Okay. And you think about how many millions of patients who have that, and you just dump that on the system. Uh, you know, insurances would really struggle with that. And I understand that as well. Maybe it's the cost of drugs. Maybe it's all that stuff. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that's a real good answer. But uh, to actually streamline this differently would be better. But, but the biggest problem I have is when I do a pre-authorization, it gets rejected. And then I go to appeal and I go back and review my notes. And then I talk to the doctor there. The reason I win is because he didn't read. They didn't read all the notes. Oh. They didn't look at the, they didn't look at the MRI report. They didn't, you know what I mean? It yes. was, they just missed it. And they, and, they, and so I, I always ask them, why do you ask for us to send all the notes on the patient when you don't read them? I mean, it, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Oh my gosh. You know, the, the gold card, the more I think about it, the better idea it is. I like the mm -hmm. idea of vetting physicians to give them more flexibility in what they do. Another question I have, what is the difference between the different insurance companies? They all have this brittle sort of algorithmic uh, criteria that they impose on the practice of medicine. Are there some which are better than other ones? You can mention names or not mention names. That's uh, up to you. I'm not the expert in that, so I can't tell you. Uh, we have less problems with, if you have standard Medicare, I would, if people can afford standard Medicare with a supplement, uh, when they get Medicare age, I just encourage them to go that route. Because even though you're healthy and even though you may not have used a lot of health care, you don't know what the future is going to bring. And uh, so you'll, even though you may be paying more, that's, uh, that's the way I would go. Manage health care changes. So what I mean by that is Blue Cross and Blue Shield may have this criteria to do median branch blocks on a patient this year, but next year they're going to change it. Really? So the rules keep changing? The, oh, the rules change on the first of the year. They publish it. You might get to see it. You might not. And then all of a sudden, you <laughs> haven't met that criteria, so it gets denied. How do you play the game without knowing the rules? Well, yeah, it's, it's just really funny. You get denials, and then all of a sudden, you find out what the new rule is, and then you start uh, adjusting your uh, notes so that, that, that fits their criteria. Those are kinds of things that we as physicians get really frustrated with, uh, and those rules... Uh, seem to be very uh, quite arbitrary, and they're based on what they perceive as abuse. You know, where sure, uh, okay, all of a sudden this this procedure is going way up, and is there any reason for it? Well, there may not be, and it may be abuse, but uh, you're penalizing everybody else and all the other patients that are involved by changing the rules and not letting us know. There are a number of different companies that uh, give health care, 
you know, health insurance, if you will. Is there a monopoly happening uh, unsaid where the rules for all of these insurance companies are roughly the same? The reason I ask this is it seems that if there were true competition in in the spirit of free enterprise and the spirit of capitalism between the different healthcare insurance providers, that there would be a competition to give the best service which would be a motivation to sharpen their algorithms to make them more user-friendly to the physician. When you're buying health insurance, I feel sorry for the layperson who doesn't know a lot about medicine and how healthcare is done because they, you basically you would think, well, I'm probably not going to buy the cheapest, but I'm certainly not going to buy the most expensive. Yeah. And uh, so I'm going to try to hit one in the middle of the road. If you ask the layperson in the United States what a pre-authorization is for healthcare, Many patients uh, might know, but most people don't. And they don't ask that when they go and get their plan. But in answer to your question, all of the, all the managed care providers use other companies to develop these uh, uh, algorithms to decide whether a procedure is medically necessary or if it's experimental. Really? Okay. So they, they farm it out then. Right. And, and one of the largest companies is a company called Evacor. They manage 100 million Medicare Advantage patients. Holy 100 million. What, how do you spell that name? Evacor? Evacor. E-V-I-C-O-R-E. Evacor. Okay. okay, thank you. Yeah, so I usually have to talk to uh, Evacor. And by the way, I have the right under the state of Texas, I have the right to talk to a peer of my own. So in other words, if I call and, and my nurse sets up a, an appeal, uh, she'll say, now, Dr. Hurley doesn't want a pain physician. Uh, board certified, uh, who who he'll talk to, and they and they by law they have to get that. I don't know if they have to be board certified, but they have to. You have to have a. In other words, I don't have to argue in front of an oncologist or you know or a, a primary care somebody. It's, it's peer review, if you will. Right, it's a peer review. You have to have peer review in order to do that, and and that can't change. If that if that, if that ever changes, I'm, uh, it's time for me to retire. <laughs> Okay. Okay. You know, you mentioned previously, and I thought this was interesting, if we didn't have insurance, the price of every procedure of every medicine would be printed uh, on the bottle. Absolutely. And do you think that the use of insurance would increase this price? So there's kind of an implicit price on everything, according to what insurance provider you have. Um, Do you think that this price is going to be higher or lower if we didn't have insurance? Anytime the federal government gets into anything, the price goes up. You know that as yes. well as I okay. do. Okay. So you, they get into uh, whatever it is they do, the price goes through the roof. And, and that's because you, you're very inefficient if you run anything from Washington, D.C., as opposed to doing something local. The state can do things cheaper than the federal government can do, and the local uh, governments can do uh, things cheaper than that. A private institution uh, like Baylor or whatever. In other words, there are ways to do things. But if the federal government gets involved, whether it is in medicine, whether it's in construction, whether it's in military, whatever it is, the price goes through the roof. A perfect example that I had was I had some properties down in Belton during Katrina and people who ha- were looking for places to live, they came up and we had a place for them. Well, you know, I, I, I put up this family for that and, and I'd been renting, my place had been renting for $800 a month before they came. And then we moved them in and the government paid me 1250. <laughs> really? 
Oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, okay. so I mean, I didn't ask them. They said that's what we pay for a three bedroom, one bath house. So okay, all right. Well, I didn't argue. I just took it. You know. You know, it strikes me that in order to improve insurance, I do like the idea of free enterprise. I'm a, I'm a big believer in it. I do believe that the FDA has to stay in the mix. I mean, what was that? What was that drug that caused uh, birth defects that a number of decades ago? That, oh, you're talking. Well, it was a German drug for sleep. It's called thalidomide. Yeah, thalidomide, and it caused all of these birth defects. And to our credit, the FDA didn't approve it, so all of those birth defects occurred in other countries that had the slippery slope that allowed it to be approved prematurely. Um, so I, I like the idea of the FDA in terms of clearing stuff, but it seems to me that we really don't have free enterprise among the insurance companies from the small amount I know. And I do like the idea that the state has some control over it. Your gold ticket, for example, was at the state level. I'm wondering if if some of these some of these different insurances were localized more and separated like the divestiture of the of the bell systems labs where they broke up the company that maybe maybe we would get a better better deal oh yeah I, uh, well the drug that we the drugs that we use in the united states cost x dollars the same drug in canada costs 75 percent less because they have one payer, and that's the Canadian uh, healthcare system. They buy all the drugs and then dispense them out. You know. Oh, so that okay. So that's a vote for socialism. It is. It is, and I'm I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, is that was there any reason why two years ago the price of insulin went, you know, doubled and tripled and quadrupled? You know, I mean, um, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know that information. But uh, then if the federal government goes in and says, okay, you can sell insulin, but you can only sell it for $35 um, a vial, okay, how many people are going to play with that? I don't know. I don't know. It, it, I don't have the answers in terms of the cost and how to control it. All I know is everybody wants uh, American health care, <laughs> and they come here in droves uh, to, to get it. It's still the best, yes. It's still, it's still the best, and, uh, and it will always, I think it will always will be as long as we do it. And it, it's not truly private. Okay. It's, there's a mixture of the federal government, state government, uh, private enterprise, all that other stuff. Uh, and so I, I, I like the drugs that I take and I like the facts that the, my pharmacists provide them, but, um, uh, I, how to handle the cost are not there, but algorithms, uh, th that are involved in healthcare to help patients get better on whether in surgery or on the floor are designed by physicians to help other physicians or providers to do things. And the algorithms for insurance companies are done differently. So, yeah, that, so that's another interesting question. This Evacor, uh, do you know what degree that they employ physicians to set up these policies? I have no idea, but they must have hundreds, if not thousands of physicians that work either part-time but please don't give me that job. I don't want to have to answer the phone and listen to guys about uh, appeals. Well, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do that. Job. Yeah, the interesting thing is probably all those medical doctors make these recommendations and it's eventually decided by a bunch of guys with MBAs. It may be true. Yeah, that's that, that would be my hunch. Okay. Any final words, Richard? No, I, 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 I'm glad we had a chance to at least talk about this. I doubt that the public is aware of the algorithms that... Uh, that are involved in uh, pre-authorization of patients for procedures or, or medications. Frequently, they blame the physician. Okay, why are you not getting this done? Why am I having to wait? They don't realize that the hang-up is not uh, at the office where you see your physician, but it's at, uh, 
it's in computers and uh, uh, insurance companies that are, uh, actually want to say and whether you can have that care or not. And if that was something that everybody knew, uh, then my suggestion for people who are buying health insurance is how much pre-authorization is this product going to have? And I might run away from it, you know? I see. Okay. How, how would you find that out though? You can always ask. Always ask. Always, always ask. Always ask. Is, is, is a procedure. Do I have to have pre-authorization to be admitted to the hospital? Do I have to have pre- pre-authorization for, for this type of surgery? You know, all those things. Okay. Yeah. Do all that. Yeah. Wow. Very interesting. Richard, this has been a a fascinating conversation, fascinating chat. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Our guest today uh, has been Dr. Richard Hurley. Dr. Hurley is a medical doctor who is board certified in anesthesiology and pain medicine. So until next time, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.